Um, there was... <laughs> Wait, I've already told the story. <laughs> God, dog, man. <laughs> okay, I don't remember what the question yeah, was. Yeah, me neither, I forgot. <laughs> Today's subject that uh, we're going to talk about is uh, what makes us human, you know? What are some things that uh, separate us and set us apart from everyone else? The usual notion is that we are an animal whose health is governed by genetics, environment, food and water intake, and the occasional disease. All of those things are true, but they aren't true enough. Lessons 1 and 2 of the History of London Lesson 1. The Foundation of London Looking back to the, to the kind of deep history of London established officially by the Romans in, um, I think, uh, 93 AD, the second time around that they uh, tried to get into Britain, and um, they set up Londinium. And uh, the Romans pretty adept at establishing uh, cities or you know settlements wherever they arrived had a set of principles for arranging urban formations and uh, one of them you know was well they paid very close attention to wind direction partly to protect uh, the streets from the damp to 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 keep people generally well but also um, because of um, well health was also deeply associated with the sense of smell and with bad smells in particular so they always located the the tanneries uh, the cemeteries um, downwind now in London that meant establishing them to the very east of the city the prevailing wind blowing over London goes from west to east so the kind of miasmic stench of the west has always you know historically been carried in that direction apart from you know on days where the wind turns around and blows it back but they're generally really cold days when the easterlies blow in so the, you know the smell's not even that noxious there so the Romans established those things there and the result of that was a kind of long history of various you know stench industries from um <laughs> what were the stench industries yeah why, why were tanneries what was Basically, you're turning an animal inside out in the first place, right? That's not a particularly nice thing to do, or, you know, it exposes the viscera of the animal, which has a very specific set of odours. And then the removal of the hair and the kind of loosening up of the leather involves lime and urine and dung. So, you know, these are all things, actually, quite interestingly, none necessarily toxic. There's nothing explicitly kind of dangerous about those substances. I mean... You could probably get quite ill if you swam, swam around in them too much. Lessons 43 to 45 of the History of London. Lesson 43, Trade, Part 1. London was anciently the resort of foreign merchants. It was rich because foreign merchants brought and exchanged their goods at this port. 
you had this long kind of uh, procession of various industries moving through the East End in the 18th, 19th century with the, the kind of birth of a coal-driven industry, sea coal in particular, uh, which left a really, really uh, kind of um, thick, thick dust in the air, but also a very particular smell. And that was when you started to get like very kind of nostalgic reminiscing for the smell of burning wood and burning wood started to acquire this really kind of prestige so the west of london was where they burnt wood and the the east of london was where they burnt dirty sea coal and well actually where we are right now is quite interesting in respect to that history so we're sat on a canal which is just a kind of a mile northeast out of uh, central london and um, it's a canal it's so it's it was part of industrial london Okay, but uh, prior to the 17th century or so, actually, it wasn't part of industrial London at all. As you walk up Kingsland Road, which is the the road I just uh, walked up now, you pass uh, the Geoffrey Museum, which is an old ironmonger's almshouse. If you go uh, further up, there's a there's the site where one of the first um, schools for girls was established in the city, and there are more kind of retirement homes and old institutions all the way along the road. And that's from the days when people used to venture north out of the city in order to get fresh air. The centre of the city is, 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 is where all the pollution kind of settles. So there's a really nice um, account in uh, Samuel Pepys' diary of him uh, walking up, up through Hoxton, uh, up towards Dalston uh, for the fresh air. It was a fresh air resort. And that's why it was thought kind of safe to set up these almshouses and these girls' schools. And you know, it, it, it was seen as somewhere kind of free of the moral and physical contagions kind of carried in the miasma of the city. But then, you know, uh, late 18th, early 19th century, you get the establishment of uh, the canals running down here you get the railway lines kind of uh, laid down and that's when the, the kind of industry starts to uh, expand north and and this becomes a far less prestigious place to live it becomes the the site where um, property becomes a lot cheaper it becomes settled by uh, uh, migrant communities arriving in the area lessons 50 and 51 of the history of london lesson 50 the terror of the plague part one You have seen the city as it appeared to one who walked about its streets and watched the people. It was free, busy and prosperous, except at rare intervals, when its own internal dissensions, or the civil wars of the country, or the pretensions of the sovereign, disturbed the peace of the city. Behind this prosperity, however, lay hid, all through the Middle Ages, and down to two hundred years ago, four great and ever-present terrors. In the 16th century, the area around uh, Tower Street apparently smelled of uh, wine and tea, while Shadwell, like Thamesmead and Woolwich today, smelled of the sugar factories around there. Bermondsey apparently smelled of beer, pickle, and the odour of fermenting fruit. And you know, walking around Monument and London Bridge, around the the warehouses that were catchalite in the Great Fire, apparently smelled of oranges and herring as well as liquor. And if you go into the um, East India Dock today. I don't know if I imagined it, but uh, you know, somebody directed my nose towards it, and you know, I thought I could smell some kind of faint hint of the spices that had like os- osmosed into the floorboards over the centuries. Actually, 
there's another really interesting smell that's completely absent from our city today but a sociologist of death and dying pointed out to me and it's the smell of death and I've already mentioned the cemeteries the Romans locating the cemeteries in the east but you know those cemeteries filled up and there are cemeteries throughout the city uh, by the you know 17th 18th 19th century and people talk about being able to kind of walk through the cemeteries in uh, in St Paul's and being able to smell the bodies which aren't actually buried deep enough and you know the smell of death exists in all kinds of different urban environments around the world still today but not in London it's it, and it's something I think that you can perhaps take for granted actually is, is, is the fact that we don't smell uh, death that yeah. much and uh, that sort of moves nicely onto a question that I wanted to ask about obviously a big you know, cause of death and a big Amazing. <laughs> a big cause of death and something that probably shaped London was the bubonic plague. What was the role of smell, specifically, you know, like good smells? during that time in London? Well, I mean, um, for a long time in the city, there was this very firmly held belief that illness, both physical illness and moral illness, was carried on a particular sense. And a a belief, therefore, that the the Black Death, the bubonic plague, um, was carried on smells as well. So um, in order to protect themselves from, from the possibility of this uh, contagion, people you know, famously you know, carried around kind of posies of, of flowers and um, um, little uh, pomanders, you know, oranges spiked with cloves and... Interestingly, um, around the time of the plague as well, the, the, because of this, this, this kind of firm belief in, in not only the fact that you could uh, catch an illness from a bad smell, but you can uh, ward it off with a good smell, the prices of spice and various extracts that were being imported from um, the UK's kind of uh, burgeoning colonies um, increases massively. So this is actually quite interesting relationship between um, uh, the, the sense of smell in kind of um, early Elizabethan uh, London, for instance, and, uh, and, and the value ascribed to particular spices as, as uh, medicines and the, the nation's colonial expansion. And I'm not being facetious about that at all. I mean, if you think about the, the kind of role that um, the spice route played, for instance, in establishing uh, networks of trade, and um, uh, spices, uh, you know, in, in early modern or modernising uh, Britain, along with sugar, I mean, you know, it's a very everyday commodity. We take it for granted. But, um, you know, the role of sweetness and the L- Londoners and Brits' desire for, for that sweetness was, was a fundamental driver of the, the networks of exchange, as brutal as they were. Yesterday's Oh, how many do you wish you could relieve? Turn the page and go back. Oh, I wonder what you'd give. Looking back, does it seem that when you planned and when you dreamed, you forgot the most important thing? Smell the flowers while the roses bloom. Take the time, my you have this kind of moment in the 16th century when uh, the Venetian traders have rediscovered the classical texts of uh, Aristotle and Plato, and Aristotle has this hierarchy of the senses, right, with a, that has vision and hearing at the top, and it has um, smell and um, touch towards the bottom. And the reason for that, you know, he argued, was that it's the... 
smell and touch require proximity and proximity uh, equates to kind of emotional responses whereas vision and hearing you can conduct at a distance and you can kind of remove yourself emotionally from it therefore the best valid knowledge about the world is that which kind of arrives through our eyes and you know that's untainted by emotion or untainted by social conditioning which we know isn't true but um, um, nevertheless you know smells put to the, the bottom of this hierarchy so you start to see a kind of you know from the 16th century onwards a real kind of disregard and a kind of disrespect for smell. Do you think it's possible to put our senses in a list or do you think they're all on equal par? I wouldn't say that they're all on equal par all the time. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's... just be daft I mean there are situations whereby one sense needs to take priority over the other I think what we do need to pay attention to is the extent to which our senses interact so when we're listening but looking in a particular way the way in which we are looking shapes the way in which we are hearing or the ways in which in, um, the kind of visual appearance of something colours are our um, tactile experience of it or our um, uh, kind of gustatory or olfactory experience of it the uh, senses all kind of um, operate together uh, all the time and I think that's really important uh, not to lose sight of if you'll excuse a visual metaphor but um, I do think um, while it's not desirable to really put our senses in a list I do think it's quite important to, to, to kind of pay attention to the senses that had been put at the bottom of the list and 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 the very quiet often quite insidious uh roles that they can play within social life but also you know um they deserve some credit you know for 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 the ways in which you know humans interact and get along i would like to think as as someone who studies senses and, and what they mean to us I'm assuming you're you have a heightened sense of say smell when you're walking around London can you distinguish different areas by their smell well I mean one of the problems and I think it is a problem with London is the the kind of density of uh, traffic through the city and uh, the kind of particulate matter that you get from uh, heavy traffic really puts a dampener on um, um, on a lot of different smells but just walking up here uh, up Kingsland Road it was it, there was a kind of like, like a like, like a like a kind of ghost of it as an old fresh air reserve uh, the, the the blossom was out on the trees and uh, there was a gap in the traffic and somebody was just cutting a lawn and you know that's that kind of very rural smell again um, um and there's a florist just down the road that was like selling kind of it looked like hawthorn and bramble and like cow parsley and stuff like they normally cut down in the countryside but kind of a little bit of the countryside there New Cross where I work um, uh, I get off the train at New Cross gate and um, um, it smells of jerk chicken straight away there's, a, there's this amazing uh, takeaway there uh, and, and I think that's really powerful because it does colour uh, that space with the the kind of olfactory atmosphere of um, of uh, downtown Kingston, um, um, and that's and that's one of the amazing things about London is the way that you know through smell and through taste, but through smell in particular, you can kind of um, uh, atmospheres of elsewheres and other times are kind of uh, reconstituted within the city. Don't forget my friends to smell the flowers.